Good morning, Walnut Hill. It is good to be here in Bethel. For those of you that are watching online, just welcome. Those in New Milford or Waterbury and my special friends in Derby, we're just glad to have you here with us this morning. It has been a good week. I hope it has for you as well. If you're wondering and asking the question, who are you? Actually, that's a good question. <laughs> I know who I am, so I'm going to tell you. My name is Clay Norman, and I've been on staff now for over 10 years in the role of staff chaplain. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that I look after, among one, uh, other things, the spiritual health of the staff. And I count that a rare privilege to be able to do that and a real responsibility as well. But like many of you, at the bottom of my job description, there's five little words that can change everything. You know what those words are? And other jobs as assigned. <laughs> I have the privilege, and it's actually a lot of fun and an honor, to be working with Craig Mowry, one of our senior pastor, lead, lead pastors, on developing and then teaching trips, on uh, teaching trips to Israel. It's become a passion for me. It's something that I enjoy doing because it has opened up scripture to me in a way that I had never understood before. And I love to teach and watch as people go with us, with Craig and I, to the Holy Land or to Israel. And the end result is, is that there's those aha moments come. Or when you come back and later I see you and you say, I'm reading scripture in a new way. We're going again next year, June 25th through July 6th, and we'd love to have you with. And that's one of those other jobs as assigned that makes my life interesting. And I know it will make your life interesting as well as if you come with us. We've been in a series called Good Questions. We've dealt with the question of why Jesus? Why prayer? Why serve? A tough one. Why suffering? One of the most oft asked questions about the world today. Why church? Why Bible? And last week, Brian talked about another really tough issue. Why forgive? I know if you're like me, that's a tough one. But it's one that's very important for us to understand and to follow the principles that Brian laid down last week. We live in a world that is full of information. Did you know that there are 350 million photos uploaded to Facebook every day? And that there, well, it seems like my inbox is gonna make a good portion of this one anyway. There's 306.4 billion emails sent every day. That there are 3.5 billion Google searches every day. And I've not left out YouTube. For those of you that are YouTube fans and you're afraid that you're gonna run out of things to watch, there are about 500 hours of YouTube videos uploaded every minute. You're not gonna run out of things to watch. That's a prophetic word. <laughs> we do not lack information. We live in a world in which we are saturated with information. It comes at us from all sides. But when Christianity, and that's the question we're asking today, why Christianity? But when Christianity makes an exclusive claim like saying they are the, we are, or Christ, Christianity is the only way to God, 
that gets to be a problem, particularly when there's so much information out there. Terence Thomas, who writes for the Huffington Post, has made this comment. To suggest that one out of 42,000 um, 42, yes, religions holds all of truth and the key to salvation is not only arrogant, but is spiritually narcissistic. Let me start with a personal experience. Some of you know that I spent 30, over 30 years flying airplanes for a living. One of the experiences that you get as a new, new pilot is you, the instructor will step out of the aircraft at some point and tell you, take the airplane around the pattern and come in and land it. And you're by yourself. They call that a solo. I still remember my solo flight. I still remember what I said on downwind, looking over at the seat where the instructor usually was and was not now. I let out a war hoop. I was exhilarated. Learning to fly can be costly time-consuming, and it can take a lot of study and effort, but it's worth it. At least I feel that it is. Another experience I had was when I was in the process of qualifying for my commercial pilot's license. I was to fly from East Tennessee, where I was learning to fly down to Florida and then come back. And I may successfully made it to Florida and landed, gassed up, charted the course back home, calculated what the winds were, set the course, and took off. The first and the second checkpoint came and went, and I was on time. The third one came, and, or the third one, I was supposed to come, and it didn't show up on time. And you're in southern Georgia, and it seems like every town has a four corners, has a railroad running through it, and has a water tower. And I figured, well, okay, I just missed it. That's not a problem. But then the fourth and fifth checkpoint didn't show up either, and I knew I had a problem. I wouldn't admit it, but I was lost, or at least I was off course. So I climbed to altitude and used an electronic piece of equipment on the aircraft called a VOR, found out where I was, and I realized very quickly that what had happened was I had overcompensated for the wind. So my course initially wasn't much of a drift, but the longer I stayed on that course, the farther I got off of my course line. I wouldn't have ended up in East Tennessee. I would have ended up somewhere probably around Washington, D.C. if I'd kept going on that course. So it's important that we understand that we are headed in a direction. During the first hour, that drift didn't mean much. But as time went on, it meant a lot. So what does this have to do with the topic today of why Christianity? Well, in our world today, there's at least six major religions. Thomas said 4,200. That's uh, not, I guess, if you count all variants of religions. But there's at least six main religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and animism, the worship of spirits. All of them make specific claims about spiritual things. And it's common to hear the question or the, the statement being made, well, don't all religions really lead to the same God? The expected answer to that question is yes, but is it true? Do all religions read, lead to the same place? Because as you see, it's possible that as you start out in life and you follow something and like that flight plan that I was following, if there is a little bit of drift in there, you can get off course after a period of time. You see, there is some truth 
in all religions. But the question is, do all religions hold all truth? And why is Christianity different? Let's look at each of those five, five of the religions. We'll skip animism, but let's look at each of them and look at them from three specific aspects quickly. What each religion says about God, what each religion says about Jesus, and what each religion says about salvation. And let's start with Hinduism. In his Hinduism, God is the absolute. It's not that he is a person or a being, it's just that he is there. He is the universal spirit in which he is everything around everything. Jesus was a teacher, a guru, not, more, not anything more than that. And salvation is simply the release from the cycles of reincarnation. And when you're released from reincarnation, it's like a drop of water falling into the ocean. That's the end. You're absorbed into that great nothingness. So that's Hinduism. Buddhism? Buddha himself did not believe in the existence of God. Today, in some portions of the world, Buddha is worshipped as a god or other gods. Jesus was, has plays no part in, the historic, um, in historic Buddhism. Jesus, Jesus, if anything, was an enlightened teacher. And salvation is the attain, attainment of nirvana. It's the elimination of all desires and cravings. You see, the end of Buddhism is escape from suffering. And that can be done when we are freed from any desire that we have. Islam. Islam, in Islam, Allah is one. Allah is the Arabic name for God. He is absolutely unique. There is none like him. He does not have human qualities. If you were to attribute human qualities to Allah, it is what's called in, Hindu, in uh, Islam, shirk. It is the highest form of insult that, that you can make to Allah because he has no qu human qualities at all. And because we as Christians believe that God is in three persons, we are in, uh, or we have violated that command, and as a result, we're guilty of shirk. Jesus within Islam is uh, called Isa in Arabic, uh, was sinless. He was born of a, as a virgin. He was sinless. He was a miracle worker, and he was one of the most respected of the prophet, prophets, according uh, to of, of Allah. But he was not crucified, and he was not res resurrected. He died a natural death at some time later. Salvation within Islam is, well, humans are born good and need guidance, and that's thus Islam. So when you come to the end of your life, the question of entering paradise is a question of do your good works outweigh your bad, bad deeds? And that is unknown until that moment, and Allah makes the decision. Part of salvation comes by following the five pillars of Islam, which are the profession of faith, prayer, alms, fasting on, during Ramadan, and then a pilgrimage at least once in your lifetime to Mecca. It's called the Hajj. Judaism is something that we're a little more familiar with, but it's fairly complicated because in Judaism, God can be a spirit who is, to Orthodox Jews, is very personal and powerful. 
But to other Jews, he is impersonal and unknowable. Jesus is either an extremist, false messiah, or he is a tragically martyred rabbi. And salvation to some Jews is through prayer and repentance and obeying the law. But to others, it's simply an improvement in society. Now we come to Christianity. God is triune, which means that we think of God as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is personal. He is involved in the world and in our lives because he created us and he is knowable. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He was born as a virgin, from a, he was born a virgin birth. He lived a sinless life. He died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven in which, where he is today. And salvation for us in Christianity is by God's grace, through, not through good works, but as a result of our accepting what Jesus has done on our behalf. John writes in the fourth, fifth chapter of the Gospel of John in the 24th verse and says, I assure you, quoting Jesus, I assure you those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. That, I would submit to you, is an audacious claim. But we have a dilemma. Like my flight back from Florida, it seemed okay when we began looking at the religions because they didn't diverge very much, but the deeper we looked into them, the farther distance we come apart. You see, Islam claims that Allah is not personal. Christianity says that he is. Both can't be equally right. Judaism says that salvation is by prayer. Christianity says that it is through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Buddhism suggests that the way to, to God is the eightfold noble path. Islam suggests that it's the five pillars. And Christianity says it's through the death and acceptance of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but they can't all be right. So the question is, well, let, let me uh, quote to you from uh, William Leakley, who is a famous uh, British historian and an opponent of Christianity. He said it was reserved for Christianity to present the world an ideal character, which through all the changes of 18 centuries has inspired the hearts of men with an impassioned love. Christianity did change the world. Other religions have tried and have in some degree been successful. But we yet haven't answered the question, why Christianity? So let me ask another question in return to try to answer it. And that is, where is the founder of each of the religions? Animism has no founder. Hinduism has no founder as well. Buddhism, the Buddha is dead. David, Abraham, Moses are all dead. Muhammad is dead. What about Christianity? Jesus is alive. This is the central truth and belief of Christianity. And I am here to tell you today that it is a testable 
claim. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that when people say that it was the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, that they were just hallucinating. They were so sorrowful that they were hallucinating. That can't be true. 500 people, Paul says, saw Jesus at one time. You can't have a mass hallucination. Other people say that Jesus just didn't die. He swooned on the cross. I'm sorry if you know anything about the beating that Jesus took prior to his crucifixion and then what happens to a human body in crucifixion. That is no way going to happen. Jesus died. There are certain objective criteria that can be established that make for an, a reasonable historic certainty that we know that Jesus died. He, he lived, died, was buried, and rose again. Some of those criteria are as follows. We have multiple independent sources that tell us that. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Apostle Paul. And you might ask or might say, or the skeptic would say, yes, but they're all friendly witnesses. And that is true. But we also have historic records attested by the enemies of Christianity that say that those facts, those things happened. Two of them I can name that are Jewish, Josephus and Philo. Two that I can name that are Roman, Tatticus and uh, Pliny. There are enemies that will, will authentic, authenticate what we know about Jesus' life. Something else that historians look for is if I were to tell you an embarrassing story about myself or my relationship to my wife, Joy, you would probably consider it true because to admit something that is embarrassing usually means that I'm not spinning a, a tale or a story. And we have that. Look at what uh, in the Gospel of Mark it meets, uh, admits about Peter in his denial of the Lord. We also know that the tomb was, uh, that, uh, so those things uh, are testable because we have embarrassing admissions. We have eyewitness testimony, and that testimony is early. I was reading in preparation for uh, this false theme of Jesus. I was reading about from, uh, some of the background of the Gospel of Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Gospel of Matthew. And the author of the commentary I was reading said that that book was probably written between the, the year AD 50 and AD 70. So within 20 to 40 years after Jesus' life, Matthew wrote his gospel. It was early, something that we said. Okay, you want to be skeptical? You can say, okay, those are facts. They're nice, good things to know. But what do they tell us? That's the criteria that you use. But what do those criteria tell us? To be honest with you, every skeptic that I've read has agreed to at least these six points. That Jesus died by crucifixion. That he was buried in a tomb by a leader of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high priestly court. That his tomb was discovered empty. And the interesting thing is here, it was discovered empty by women. Within the Jewish culture of that time, a woman was not a credible witness. But God chose to use women to say, my son rose from the dead. It was, um, they, disciples believed that they, they had real experiences. Remember, this is from a skeptic's perspective, that they were real experiences of seeing Jesus after his resurrection. We know that their lives were transformed as a result of that. 
because we know that they went, all, all but John the Apostle, went to their death in some form. And we know that you will not continue to hold to a lie if someone is going to kill you. Generally, that will not happen. And it was taught early, as I mentioned before. So Jesus did live, he died, he was resurrected. And from scripture, we know that he ascended to heaven where he is today. These were life-changing beliefs that the early apostles had and that we can have today. It's important for us to understand this for a simple reason. If you've been around Walnut Hill for a while, you know that Greg Flower, who preaches every once in a while, is a big movie fan. Well, I happen to like the Star Wars movies. Within the Star Wars movies, there's the phrase, may the force be with you. Well, that is not a Christian idea because I don't want the force to be with me. I want God to walk with me. So we find those influences of other religions injected into the world that we live in very commonly. We see that all roads don't lead to God. It's interesting, a, a poem by Edward Shillerton, uh, in his poem, Jesus of Scars, he writes this, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But on our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a, not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus is alive. And that is the way to know the living and true God. Those disciples were changed. They heard Jesus at least three times in his lifetime within the last six months of his life, I would assert, tell them what exactly was going to happen to him when he got to uh, Jerusalem on that Passover, that he would be arrested, beaten, he would be crucified, he would be buried, and, be, and rise again from the dead. The amazing thing is that as he told them those things, they did not understand or believe, and they happened exactly the way he said it would. Jesus has the truth, and we need to understand that and follow it. His followers also, as I've mentioned twice now, their lives were changed because they believed what happened to Jesus and what he taught them. And as a result, he walked with them through some very difficult times. He provided them life. Now, if that sounds very familiar, it is. Because let me read to you from the Gospel of John from chapter 14, just one verse. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an audacious claim. The thing is, is he backed it up with his life. Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher of some people, as some people have said, or a messianic pretender. He didn't leave us those options. Let me read to you from C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would, could not and would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either have been a lunatic 
on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would have been the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about this, his being a great human teacher. He has not let us, left us open, uh, that idea open to us. He did not intend to. So I would submit to you that the question of why Christianity is one word, Jesus. He's done so much for you and for me. The question I have to ask is, as I, as I read this and study this, is what, how did I respond? How do I respond to him? Do I surrender to him? Because I know he can change me in ways that are good. Christianity and its claims have been laughed at, been sneered at, been rejected. But I am here to tell you that it is a testable fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave and he did it for you and for me. Novelist Douglas Copeland, who describes himself as a cynical person, angry, narcissistic, and sexually broken, he says in his book, Life After God, my secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. When we reach the end of ourselves, God is waiting for us. Jesus is there waiting for us to come to him. He's a gentleman. He never forces himself on you, but he's always there ready and willing to accept you no matter where you've been or what you've done. He cares. When I was a freshman in college, I met my wife, um, I met Joy, who is now my wife, and she gave me a ticket to a weekend seminar. I went to the seminar and the speaker there during the course of that weekend made a statement that I internalized and it has changed my life. That statement is God made you just the way you wanted to be. He, God has made you the way he wanted you to, uh, to, uh, he wanted you to be. You see, as a freshman, I had a problem and I was very conscious about it and actually self-conscious. I had a very aggressive receding hairline. When I heard that God created me just the way he wanted me to be, I lost my comb over. No, it took a while for me to understand that I'm just the way God is and other people weren't laughing at me or saying things about me behind my back. That took time, but God worked in my life because he cares for me, he loves me, and he wants me to know that he's there for me. And the same is true for you as well. Christianity says you are loved. It also says that evil will not win no matter what you're going through at this time in your life. That our lives have purpose. 
that we can be creators of peace. And that's what Brian talked about last week. The whole idea of being, of being able to forgive and having peace. And that we have a hope for the future. This morning, I've given you a lot of information. But I've done it for a specific reason. Because as Brian said last week, we don't preach here at Walnut Hill for information's sake only. We preach for transformation. We live in a world in which people are saying every way you believe, as long as you're sincere, is going to get you where you need to go. That's not true. Christianity is the only religion that says God is personal. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to walk with you. And he's got a plan for your life that leads to eternal life. What are you going to do with him? As I ask the worship team to come back to, to sing our last song, let me pray. Father, we're thankful that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. He did provide for us that very thing that we need because he cares for us. He loves us and we need him. We pray today that you would use Christianity, but not just Christianity as a religion, but you would use the relationship of Jesus to transform our lives. And the end result would be that we are different and we can touch other lives as well. In thy precious name, amen.